0: This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long. I am here with Timothy Wilds at the Wilds Bachelor Pad. We have been here all day. We started at at 3. It is now uh, 8.30. Mm -hmm. So we have literally been recording all day long. Lots of fun. So here we are. Okay, so we are still talking about Revoice. And for this episode, we're going to address Wesley Hill. So we're going to spend this whole episode addressing Wesley Hill and his final talk for Revoice. This was the last keynote. So Timothy, how did how did you feel about Wesley Hill? His talk for
1: me was, um, was very familiar in terms of the language he used. I mean, I'm looking at my notes here, and I'm You know his speak his speaking about the fact that you know we are seeking to live chastely. uh, We have to surrender. You know he talked a lot about you know the upholding the upholding of God's law, the the upholding of you know morality, so that it's not the term he used was, you know, trimmed down and things like this. Mm. I mean these these were very familiar
0: concepts yes, to me. This is this has been repeated over and over and over again to me. This is the exact same playbook I've heard forever. Yes. There's really not much new here that I've heard.
1: No. I would call this good garden variety talk about <laughs> <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> talk about why we or not we, why those who uphold a traditional sexual morality. This is sort of the playbook.
0: Yeah. This talk. Yeah, I I think that's true. So let me <clears throat> Oh God, I have I have a lot to say here. Uh Wesley and I, we go we go way back. And he, you know, you, you said before we started recording that it was the most boring talk for you. It was just like the least the least compelling talk mm-hmm. for you. For me, I think because of my personal history with this person, I with this specific person, Wesley Hill. The first time I listened it listened to it, I was shaking. It was so hard for me. Okay. It was it was just so hard. And I know that sounds kind of absurd and I know it sounds kind of over the top, but it's true. So let me give some backstory here. I, I do have a story to tell before we get into Wesley's lecture here. I had a really formative experience with Wesley's book, *Washed and Waiting. So Wesley Hill wrote the book Washington Waiting, which has in some circles become kind of the gay celibate handbook. It, it's become kind of one of the central texts for for evangelicals and Anglicans and Catholics and so on who are uh, trying to live in accordance with the traditional sexual ethic. And uh, I I tried reading it. And this was when I was in a very fragile place. I was in a very vulnerable place. Uh, This was when I was in college and you know, you knew me in college. You were my professor. I was all kinds of fucked up and (laughs) just a bit. Yeah, it was bad. It was really bad. And I was, so I was not in a good place when I read Wesley Hill's book and it destroyed me. It, it crushed me. Hmm. It was just a totally devastating read. And you know, I, I didn't finish it and and I have to admit, I never finished it. I, I tried several times to go back and read it. But because of the time of life in which I read it, I, I just can't. It was just too hard. But I had another formative experience with something Wesley wrote. And I really count this as something that has really shaped my perspective and view of this ever since. And it was a breaking point for me. You know, there have been several, you know, there are several points in our lives where we hit rock bottom, where we just shatter. And this was one of those points. Mm. So I read an article by Wesley Hill, and this was years ago. This was like in 2012 or 2000. uh, Yeah, I think actually it was, it must've been like 2011 or 2012. And this article was about or th- this article referred to Henry Nowen, who is a profound spiritual teacher. He was a really great man. Well, Henry, Henry Nowen was gay and was secretly gay and remained celibate his entire life, and it tortured him. Mm. It absolutely tortured him. Henry Nowen lived a life of immense pain. He said that, you know, there was an, an account by one of Henry Nowen's friends saying that he went to, they, they went to see that film that that old film based on a book by um goodness it's about a gay couple in england and you know it, uh, uh uh it's right at the tip of my tongue it's
1: Ian e. Forster book Ian
0: for yes um, do you remember the name of that um uh, okay well so it, it yeah it so there's this account by one of his friends that they went to see this movie together based on a book by Ian Forster Is it more- It is Maurice. That's right. (laughs) Yes, I could not remember the name of the book. And he said that afterwards, uh, Henry Nowen was so devastated he could not stop sobbing Mm. and that they had to get out of the car and he just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. Well, so Wesley Hill's commentary on Henry Nowen, he was praising Nowen and setting Nowen forth as a model for gay Christians, as a model of integrity for gay Christians. And he quoted one of Nowen's friends who said, Again and again and again, Henry Nowen chose to live the wound. Again and again and again, he chose the wound. Mm-hmm. That was when I shattered. I mean, that that's when I was destroyed. Because I was in my very early 20s. I was already dealing with a lot of mental health. I was dealing with rejection in the church. I was dealing with PTSD from a shooting and I talk about that in another episode. I was dealing with loneliness in the closet and I'd come out of the closet and it was a disaster and I was trying to figure out what I believe. It was a really, really hard time of my life. It was really awful, plus all the pressures of being in college. And hearing that my option was to choose to live the wound again and again and again, from someone who apparently knows what they're talking about, Wesley Hill, that I might as well have just killed myself there. Mm-hmm. That, that was the end of the road for me, I felt like. That's when I said, I can't do this. Th- this, is, this is death to me. This is, I don't know how to do this anymore. Be- and um, this is why I get really concerned. This is why I think there's a messaging problem. I get really worried about this. How can you say, choose to live the wound over and over and over again, and use this incredibly hurt, broken man, Henry Nouwen, as a model? How can you do that and expect for it to not fuck people up? Especially people who are vulnerable and confused and already broken. That's a problem That's a really serious problem. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do this whole series on Revoice was because my fear is that more and more young people will be put into the position that I was put into. Because Exodus is done. The ex-gay world is done, pretty much. I mean, there's still pockets of it, but for the most part, it's, it's done. My fear is that the church, in, a, in an effort to, to find something, to, to be an answer to that, to be an answer to homosexuality, they will reach for this instead. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not convinced it's much better. Because it's just a matter of time, if it hasn't happened already, that another young, vulnerable person will hear Wesley Hill say, you just got to choose the wound over and over and over again, and just decide life's not worth it. Mm -hmm. That's a massive fucking problem, and that's why I'm worried about this. There's a messaging problem here.
1: But wouldn't it be not uncommon to, you know, console someone about the wound over and over again and say something noble and very Christ-like and say something like, well, God won't give you more than you can bear. Yeah, which is bullshit.
0: (laughs) It's complete bullshit.
1: But, I mean, that is... That is what floats in the ether in this, you know, because, yeah, you know, you would not be asked to bear more than you can and God will be with you and, and believe me, I do believe God is with us and I, I do believe God cares for us and I do believe God is good. You know, I believe a great many things that these speakers say, it's just that I come to some different conclusions.
0: Yeah. But,
1: you know, thank you for sharing that story about Henry Nowen because I did not know that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and none of this is to say that Henry Nowen was not a great man. I, I think that he Oh, was, no, I think that's undeniable. You know, I think Henry Nowen was undeniably one of the, the 20th century's truly great spiritual teachers. But he was obviously, he felt deeply
1: compelled, maybe I need to use a stronger word, <laughs> not compelled, but commanded to maintain this this ethic throughout his life, regardless of how much torture it was causing him. Yeah. And maybe that was the particular religious tradition he was a part of. Yeah, he was Catholic. You know, not to mention the fact that, you know, among the, tw- the late 20th, 20th century's, you know, luminaries, he's one of them.
0: Yes, he is. So... so- that experience has uh so if you want to know why i'm so angry and if you want to know why i can't just lie down and pretend that this isn't a big deal and say oh well you know we just disagree that's okay there aren't any you know just let people be who they are you do you, I'll do me, and uh, this is why I can't do that because I don't, I really don't want another human being to suffer in the way that I did. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't wish that on another human being, and I happened to survive it. But there's a very good likelihood that someone else won't, and that worries me. So, with that said, yeah, let's uh let's go ahead and get into Wesley Hill. Um, this was a shorter talk. And, uh, and it didn't have quite as many points, so I'll just go through them here. Uh, so, the, so the theme for this talk is hope, and hope within a traditional LGBT context. He says that many people in the room have experienced very deep shame. And he says we need hope because of this shame, that we have experienced very, very profound shame directly connected to lgbt identity and that this is an, a recurring experience for those who are lgbt and he uh describes a horrible experience of shame from a memoir by an lgbt person by a gay man and i forget the author and i forget the book so i'm sorry about that but basically what happened in this book is that you know this this young man who's gay he's a boy and he's out fishing with his father and some friends his friend's dad was shirtless and just lying in the sun and he found himself staring at this man and his father said stop it and he was suddenly caught in this moment of staring at his friend's father and he said that the shame was just completely horrific and immobilizing So, and he said, and Wesley says that it's very likely that many people in the room with him have experienced that kind of shame, and maybe... He says, maybe it was like when you forgot to clear your browser history <laughs> as one example. So he brings up one particular story in the Bible when Jesus was presented with great shame. And that was the woman caught in adultery. And we all know this story, so I'm not going to retell it. But the Pharisees bring before Jesus a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery. And the scribes brought her to him to test him to see how he would you know to see what he would say to them. Of course, he says Let any of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. And one by one, each of the Pharisees drop their stones and walk away, realizing that each one of them uh, has sin. And when they've all left, Jesus turns to the woman and says, uh, "Go, your sin is forgiven. Go and sin more. Go and sin no more. Go your way. I do not condemn you." So Wesley Hill points out to several story, you know, several lessons here. He says, first, Jesus does not combat the shame of this woman by rewriting the rule book. Uh, You know, that um, instead of, accommodating her shame and saying that it is actually okay to commit adultery. That's not what he said. He doesn't erase the commandment. Wesley says that when Jesus hung out with sinners, he didn't do it by trimming God's standard down to fit whatever chaos is true for our lives. He sa- he quotes Jesus in saying that uh, Christ has not come to abolish the law. Uh, so, you know, he kind of hammers this point quite a bit, many times over. Jesus was not out to undermine God's holy will, and Jesus, in fact, some, in some ways, ratcheted up the holy standard. He says that everyone attending Revoice has come here, you know, they could have chosen any number of gay conferences, but they chose this one because they just can't get over this conviction that God has spoken a word into their sexual lives they've seen that and they and he says he struggles with it and he says he may not understand why it's there but he just cannot surrender it. Can I make one other point?
1: Yes, for sure. Uh, after that after that line about God has spoken
0: a word for
1: our sexual lives, he went on to say has given a vision for what sexual holiness and flourishing looks like, to which I wanted to say
0: um, what does that look like <laughs> it's sexual flourishing <laughs> yeah
1: what does sexual flourishing like look like when you are on pause yeah what does that look like yeah i'm not sure yeah that's a good point it <laughs> just raised a real question for me um, <laughs> because because <laughs> i'm not sure i don't know how you flourish sexually when you're not Having sex? <laughs> just I'm not sure what that looks like. <laughs> I mean, is it is it just a That's metaphorical funny. sense? Is That's it, hilarious. Uh, um, I don't know. Is it imaginary? Oh, I guess not. No, it couldn't be imaginary. I, I don't know. I'm I'm really confused about that.
0: Yeah. So so Wesley, we'd we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. If we're misunderstanding something, uh, let us know. We'd love to hear back. Because I would argue. You know, at the end of the last
1: episode, I I read that list of commonsensical biblical directives that God says, you want to know what I want you to do with your bodies, with each other, go by this, you know, and I'm just going to say, you know, according to that list, there can be, I'm sorry to say, you may not agree, sexual holiness, holiness and flourishing between people of the same sex. Mm. Mm hmm. I would argue that that's possible in the context of those broader directives that we have been given about noble, life-giving, life-respecting behaviors as it regards our bodies and our sexuality. And be that man-to-woman, man-to-man, woman-to-woman, whatever it is, follow those guides and... I think we could see exactly what he's saying here yeah i I agree with that now he would be offended that I would make that make that adjustment, but I would say, otherwise, we need to know how a non sexually active person experiences
0: sexual flourishing, mm-hmm, yeah, he goes on to say um <sighs> He goes on to say, if God agreed with us on everything, then why do we need to have this religion called Christianity? We are here because we feel bound by a word that has been revealed for us. So Jesus fights against the shame of this woman, but not at the expense of his law. Now, of course, these are not all direct quotes. I'm paraphrasing here. So bear that in mind. I want to clarify something here. I think this is a miscalculation. I will certainly say that I am amending a law. Whether it's God's law or not, I don't know. I don't think it is. I certainly don't think it's God's law, but I will say that it is a law that has been in place by the church, and I will say that, I am, that it is a definitely an agenda of mine to change it. Not because I'm trying to adjust it to people's experience of shame and sin, but because I believe the law is evil and that is a fundamental difference mm-hmm. it includes people's reactions it includes people's shame but i'm sorry it's a lot bigger than that you know and, and so these are the kinds of pivots and reframes that really frustrate me mm-hmm. of, of and i'm sure that i might unconsciously be doing the same thing of some of These arguments as well, which is why I want to hear back from people to know what I'm whether what I'm saying is ringing true or not But this is what you know, these there are these reframes that I find really frustrating It's like no, I don't actually think that the progressive world is adjusting to people's shame to make the sting less hard Mm -hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, I do I I believe in very high standards like fuck I'm in the 12 steps you want to you want to face shame and brokenness head on do the 12 steps do step 4 and 5 take a fearless moral inventory of your life and see how you feel afterwards i believe in being held to a high standard i believe that human weakness is real and that we have to be held to a higher standard i'm not trying to change this law because i think it's you know because i think i need to adjust it in the face of the the allegorical woman in a caught in adultery's shame i'm doing it because i think it is objectively evil Mm -hmm. and that's the difference
1: well there's also this notion that you know what people really want is to trim the law to accommodate their worldly passion to quote him. I mean, that's not quoting him, that's quoting the Bible, but he uses that term in his in his uh, address. And I'm going, okay, I'll need an accommodation because I want to do something that's viewed as
0: improper or wrong. Which well, what makes it improper? Which I also have to point out is available to every single heterosexual person on this planet. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. But I'm just thinking, okay, so
1: you're saying that I want to trim the law so that I can get away with what I want to get away with. But please answer this for me. This thing that you think I want to get away with, which is actually not in my life a sordid, you know, Uh, desire. It's simply standard operating procedure. This thing that, you know, this thing that is very real to me, you have defined as abominable, warped, broken, need of healing, you know, not chaste, blah, blah, blah. That's how, but you've defined it that way because you've taken this translation of a text written by a very ancient people of from very different cultures (laughs) and you've you've said it says it period Mm -hmm. and my question is my, my, my question is are we sure in the year 2018 that this translation of this ancient text is speaking god to us in the 21st century, mm-hmm. which you know, those those who are afraid of the language I've just used will say, "Well, you're just you've you've just gone totally off the cliff." Uh, to and, which I'm
0: like, "That's fine."
1: <laughs> <laughs> you've just gone totally off the cliff because you really just want permission to do what you want to do. And I want to say, well, first of all, the thing I want to do, not something that I selected out of a catalog. <laughs> oh, it would be nice to be this today or this tomorrow or for this for the rest of my life. Let's let's. You're not choosing a costume out of one of no, those Halloween magazines. I'm not. I'm not. This was this was imparted. We know how scripture has been abused or excuse me. Yes, it has been abused and it has been used to abuse people. Just think of all the ways in which it has been a kind of weapon against people that we just didn't particularly want to like or to love or to include
0: or to treat well also that there is just i in my opinion and i know there will. There are people who will disagree with me. In my opinion, the Bible has just as strong a case for slavery as there is as strong a case against homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is in both the Old and New Testament. And I think that slavery is, in fact, an image as central to the biblical understanding of God... (laughs) You know, God is understood as a master, and that this, the relationship between follower and God is a master slave relationship. And then that transforms with Jesus into being friends. I now call you friends. I no longer call you slaves. I now call you friends. But that, so that transformation is central. And nowhere did Jesus say it's wrong. Nowhere in the Old Testament or New Testament is there an acknowledgement that it is wrong. I think that there is just as strong a case to be made that slavery is as central to the image of God's relationship to man as marriage is an image of the relationship between man and God. Mm. Okay. But we have a very different view of slavery. Or Judaism. Let's not forget the Jews. There there was one thing that all three branches, sorry, I'm sounding way more angry than I should right now. (laughs) I'll try to—I've <laughs> had, <laughs> had a couple of ciders. I'm, I'm getting a bit heated. There's one thing that all three branches of Christianity agreed on for, for two millennia, okay? Mm-hmm. That was the outsider status and damned status of the Jews. Mm-hmm. All three traditions, almost unanimously from the early church—I mean, not from the early church, I mean, from St. Augustine and about that time till today— theologians i'm sorry i'm not a theologian don't 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 shoot me please (laughs) stop okay but you get the idea and it wasn't until the horrific explosion of anti-semitism that was the holocaust that finally the church stepped back and was like oh let's not do this right the difference is context and this shows just how social we are as a species what is obvious to us is not because it is within scripture. It's because the people around us believe it. Hmm. That is way. That is the way we understand what's real because we are evolved to be tribal creatures. And so I challenge anyone to consider the possibility that maybe they think scripture is clear not because of the scripture itself, but because of their context. And I'm sorry, that doesn't help, that, that hurts our pride to hear that because we all want to think that we're perfectly rational beings. We all want to think that we're perfectly free and individual agents coming to conclusions of our own free will and neuroscience calls bullshit. Hmm. I am hmm. so rational, says this tiny little strip of tissue in the middle of your forehead. Okay? <laughs> That's not how we function. <laughs> we we believe things are true because of context. Now we can be aware of that, we can push against that, we can work with it, but if you're not aware of it, you are going to fall prey to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I really challenge everyone to consider the ways in which context is what shapes your belief. Maybe the scripture isn't clear. Maybe the scripture is all a matter of interpretation. Maybe all scripture is just literature and we interpret it the same way we interpret literature. And maybe the way in which we interpret it Is determined by our context And the reason we don't And the reason why anti-Semitism The righteousness of anti-Semitism Isn't so obvious to us today As it was to Christians Through the millennia Is because our context has changed Mm -hmm. Maybe we don't see slavery As obviously good Because context has changed And I just challenge everyone To consider that possibility No,
1: you bring up a very, very good point and I just, this is, this is, this was the absolute, you know, the shifting plates of the earth, you know, for me, when I realized that the only thing that held my traditional biblical sexual ethic together, the only thing that it could actually set upon was what I had been taught since, you know, becoming a Christian, which was the inerrancy infallibility and inspired nature of the, of the scriptures which meant which to use the words of marcus borg constitutes a conscious literal reading of the scriptures which you're means, going to be burned as a witch He brought up marcus, marcus borg <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so so basically if it says it it must be true yeah and and the fact is i was dishonest with myself because even when I would hold that standard against myself in terms of my homosexuality, I knew there was stuff in there that we weren't obeying. I knew there was stuff in there. I mean, I knew the stuff in the New Testament. I don't even, I won't even talk to you about the Old Testament. Yeah. Let's just talk about the New Testament. I knew there was stuff in there that we were not holding people accountable to. But you know, when you were in as as tenuous a place as I was. It didn't pay to ask questions.
0: Mm-hmm. It didn't pay to wonder.
1: I mean, what was I gonna do? Literally,
0: you were yeah. you were in in Christian colleges. It literally didn't I was pay in, <laughs> I,
1: I was in conservative evangelical Christian colleges, schools, and churches where mm-hmm. where I could have been treated exactly as Ray Lowe was treated.
0: Yeah, I was <laughs> exactly. thinking about that
1: and to some degree the college i most recently left implicitly kind of did that i agree so the the point is i hear the words of wesley hill and to be honest now that i think about the content of it it's sort of like it was sort of like the closing pep rally
0: yeah it was it really
1: it was sort of like the closing pep rally <laughs> of this conference it's like everything we all know to be true everything we need to you know wrap ourselves up with and go out there and just, you know, it was almost like a a stump speech
0: Mm, mm -hmm.
1: to some, to some degree. Nothing was particularly new. No. Yeah. It was like solid meat and
0: potatoes kind of talk. I felt like of the six talks that we've listened to through this process, I think Raylo and Eve Tushnet. Oh, really, really provided the most, substance the most substance substance here i i think i enjoyed those two and and really felt intellectually challenged and engaged Mm -hmm. most Mm -hmm. with those two sorry all the others i still like you i think you're great people yes (laughs)
1: yes
0: yeah so he says that there's also a second lesson oh boy another rant is coming i can (laughs) (laughs) i just looked at my notes and i can feel it coming oh okay He says the second lesson is, in this story, is that the beginning of our being set free from shame is when we begin to realize that we are no better off, his words, quote, no better off and no worse than any other Christian before God. In other words, we are all equally in need of God's grace and mercy. And uh, so, you know, the revelation is that, or, or the realization is that, When all the Pharisees dropped their stones, there was the understanding that they were just as sinful as her and that we have the same experience as gay people. Ooh, my stomach is making squishy noises. (laughs) I hope that isn't coming through the mic. And that when when we as gay people realize that our shame is shared that we are all equally broken that all Christians that all people all have their weird quirks and things and and that we are all uh we have all fallen short of the glory of God for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God to quote Romans so I'm not buying it <laughs> okay <laughs> and the reason I'm not buying it and the reason I think this is actually damaging is because the end result does not match the message The experience does not match the message. And what I mean by this is that in practice, we are worse off. We are barred from meaningful, romantic, sexual relationships in a way that the vast majority of straight people are not. Mm -hmm. You are saying that our sexuality is broken in a profound and meaningful and intimate way that is unresolvable in this life but for the grace of God. Mm -hmm. How do you expect someone in the gay community to listen to that and then take seriously the claim that we're not worse off? I think he's speaking in a very Western
1: Protestant judicial kind of language. Yeah. That, you know, as far as being measured before the righteousness, you know, but... Your point is well well made. I mean the fact is there's immense inequality.
0: Yeah, and and there there is immense inequality and I mean is it is it that all people are essentially valuable to the same degree even though people have different giftings and hurts and wounds and some more extreme than others, is that what you're talking about? I don't know, but the end result in practice, you can't say that an entire community, that the, an entire population the size of a small country that spans this entire globe and spans human history is banned or commanded by God to not experience sexual intimacy and then expect that people group To believe that they are not uniquely broken uniquely and significantly broken and then here's where it gets worse here it gets more disgusting is when people say exactly what wes has said here that oh no we're all equally sinful all have fallen short of the glory of god it makes queer people feel crazy Mm-hmm. It makes LGBT people feel crazy. because It makes me feel crazy because here I am saying, no, you don't understand what you're saying does to me mean that I am more broken, that I am more worse off, that I am more devastated. And then, you know, the church comes along and says, oh no, but you aren't really. That isn't actually what I'm saying. That's fucking gaslighting.
1: Well, I mean, there's, uh, there's a great irony here that, this is his message, and the day before, Ray Lowe told his story. <laughs> yes. I mean, Ray is like, uh, standing in the back of the nave uh-huh. at Memorial Press going, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. <laughs> I mean, I am a living picture of the church saying to me, hmm, at a, you know, in a soteriological way, you are equal,
0: but... In
1: other ways, we ain't comfortable with thinking exactly. you as equal.
0: And I would say that in a more subtle way, Wesley Hill is saying the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it makes people feel crazy. It you know, codip- you know uh, not codependency. Uh, gaslighting makes people feel like they're going crazy because because what they are experiencing does not match up with what other people are saying is actually happening. And, and as
1: I've said to you many a time, um, even before we recorded this session is that's, that is the great that to me is what hurts people. The most is when you use things like their faith and their belief and their trust and their hope as measures of their spirituality And whether or not they are, whether they're going to receive these promises and these benefits that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it can be immensely cruel because to put that much weight on someone's ability to believe enough, hope enough, strive enough, surrender enough, sacrifice enough lay down their life enough. I mean, when is enough? Yeah, exactly. And I would say, according to the, to the Christian tradition, I think enough took place on Golgotha, didn't it? Yeah. You I know, think that was the measure of enough. And that should be, in fact, I'm pretty sure the scriptures say that it was sufficient.
0: So I, um, I have several thoughts here and uh i'll just grab one and run with it mm-hmm. so uh, i had a friend in college a, a really really good friend um a girl who was super sweet and she was a great friend of mine uh, so she had very large breasts and she was a very small girl and she was in immense pain because of the weight of her breasts on her back hmm and it was destroying her back. and she was just in in constant constant pain. And so she was carrying this enormous weight, and she was not a large girl. I mean, she she was tiny. She was <laughs> like the size of a rail. And, and so she and then she had these very disproportionately large breasts. And she needed a reduction. And she begged her parents for a reduction. But she told me that her parents, her father, who was a minister, wouldn't let her have one because they believed that surgery was sinful. And that, yeah, they, they believed that surgery was sinful, any form of body modification. They were very, very, they were very traditional, very conservative Christians. And so to them, this was just a body modification and it was sinful in their eyes. And so they would not allow their daughter, who is in perpetual pain because of something she did not choose. Yeah. To get surgery that she needed. Wow. Okay, okay this is how I feel about this. Huh. You know, there's a lot of pain here, but like, you know, there's a lot of pain that this stuff causes, but, you know, and I understand that homosexuality, the, the sinfulness of homosexuality, has more precedent within scripture than her parents' loony beliefs about surgery. Right. Like, I get that. But all that being equal, all else being equal, in practice, how are these two situations different? How are they not both forms of abuse? Mm -hmm. Of saying, because of this religious idea, you can't find the relief you need. And that's where I really struggle with this. Because like I said in a previous episode, my partner and I, we're both In caretaking professions, he's a therapist who works in suicide prevention. I work at a local grocery store that feeds people who can't otherwise eat very well. And we, you know, sell food to people very cheaply. And I'm a yoga teacher. So we're in caring professions. And our primary question is always, how do we reduce suffering? Mm -hmm. And that's my bias. Uh, I admit that other people don't share that bias. But that's my bias. I'm very utilitarian in that way. I think that was Jesus's bias, too. Yeah, I, I will agree. But, you know, I'll I go out on a limb on that. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I add these caveats. I add these caveats because I have heard people say it doesn't matter how much pain you're in. Words. God's word is God's word, you know. And so. The level, and and, you know, one person told me, you know, it doesn't really matter how much pain you're in, or it doesn't matter if sin feels good and is redemptive. It really doesn't matter. God's word is God's word. They have a very different center of morality and ethics that, you know, we can talk about that for days. I think it's monstrous, but you know, Mm -hmm. that's their moral center. So, okay, moving on. Wesley Hill, he talks about uh, to this point, that all are sinners and fallen and have fallen short of the glory of God, he brings up Romans chapter one, the anti-gay passage, and he does make a good point here. And I do think it merits, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a good point where Paul is saying that you know men exchange natural passions for unnatural ones as a form of idolatry with and so too with women and it's a result of idolatry and you and he says that you could almost hear like the righteous people in the crowd cheering but then in the next passage in the next chapter in romans 2 paul turns it on them Mm -hmm. and says so who are you to boast yeah you know and, and that is a good point that the passage is not about condemning gay people, it's about condemning all people. Mm -hmm. Right, okay, so I think that is a fair point. I think that's a decent point, and I do appreciate that he brought that up. It doesn't uh, contradict any of the misgivings that I've shared, but I I do appreciate that point. Mm -hmm. So he says that, I have in my notes, he says that the woman caught in adultery is no further from the kingdom of God than the... Ones who wanted to throw stones at her. And then in the middle of my note taking, I got a call from my car insurance agent and it interrupted my (laughs) notes. (laughs) And that is where my notes left (laughs) (laughs) off. So I, that was like, I I only had like three minutes left though. And so I don't know if you have anything left that he said or how he, I listened to it multiple times, but I don't remember how he finished it. Oh dear. I don't have anything else. I The one thing I wrote here is that I
1: felt that what he said that in what he said there was an absence of any acknowledgement of the reality that we are sexual beings who need love in emotional and physical ways as we go through this life. And again, it's it it was a it was a thread that came through many times this concept that because of a particular interpretation of these passages that are condemning. Therefore, a part of me is condemned. And therefore, what do I do with that condemnation? Mm -hmm. How do I live my life? Because I know you spent a, a great deal of time doing this, and I have begun the process of reading just how varied the interpretations are of these passages of scripture that, according to the translations we've been given, are specific in naming homosexuality or homosexual behavior. And the fact that there isn't a consensus. Yeah. There simply isn't.
0: Yeah. No, I I agree. I just don't think that the Bible is clear. And I know that I will just have to you know, Wesley and I will just have to honestly part ways, you know, he said that we can't wriggle out of uh, Romans chapter one, we, we can't just wriggle out of that and and trim God's law, because apparently to him, it's clear, I respect that it is clear to him, I, I respect that I believe him when he says that, but it isn't to me. And we're just going to have to be okay with that. And I'm kind of left here I think what's left here for me is, well, how do I view scripture? My criticisms have been less scripturally based mm-hmm. and more based in, in the con- and lived consequences. Because frankly, that's what I'm more concerned with, I think. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm more concerned with that. I have great love and respect for scripture. It is <coughs> part of my life. But when people ask me, do you think that the Bible condemns homosexuality, I would say yes. I think it's pretty clear, but I think the Bible's just wrong. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think that Paul... Disliked homosexuality. I think he saw homosexuality within his context, and he disliked it and believed it was sinful And I think it's pretty clear that he thought homosexuality was sinful. I also think it's pretty clear that that homosexuality that he was talking about has little bearing on the homosexuality that you and I experience I think that's I think that's very very clear. Yes. Is it clear that scripture is homophobic? Yes, I think so. I think it is clear that scripture is homophobic also I don't care because I think it's because my view of scripture is not that it is divinely inspired in that God dictated it. I believe that it is divinely inspired, as Mike McArg said, in the same way that a love song he wrote for his wife was inspired by his wife. Yeah. It's about God. It is not, in my view, breathed by God.
1: Well, as Peter Enns would say, these are two ancient records
0: of... Two ancient people's experiences with God. Yes, exactly. And, and, they, and it provides a, a model for us, and it provides inspiration for us, and it's our lineage, and that's why it's important. It's our tradition, not because they had all the answers, not because they had everything right, but because it's our language and our lineage and our evolutionary stream as a religion. And Marcus Borg would also say, what makes these sacred to
1: us is that they are the very words that give us identity as a people.
0: Yes, absolutely. 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 So I
1: appreciate what you just said about the fact that, you know, these, these renderings of these words in foreign languages, ancient foreign languages, I might add, for which someone in time translated, you know, as homosexual are definitely referring to activities going on at that time in history in those cultures that aren't necessarily transferable to how we think of that today. I mean, this is this is not me desperately trying to trim to quote Wesley to trim the scriptures down to what I want. Yeah, I agree with this that. This is what is self evident. This you. is self evident. This is this is what. This is basically what biblical scholarship has been showing us for decades. Yeah. And you you can either come on board with that or you can continue to take more of a, you know, militant fundamentalist late 1900s view of the scripture where basically protecting the scripture became everything. Yeah. It had to be it had to be defended and. The best way to defend it was to remove all doubt of its origin. Yes. And what better way to stop the conversation than to say, God said every word. Yes, exactly. Literally.
0: Yes, exactly. And what, what better way to shut conversation down? And here's the thing. I feel like I have a more rich and a higher view of Scripture now that I see it as this unbelievably complex work of man trying to understand God because I feel like that is what it is. And because of that, I think it is a more honest and more true and more respectful understanding, a higher view of Scripture. So... To end here, I just want to offer some, some books for possible reading for people who are more interested in this. If you want to hear more on the traditional ethic, Really great place to start is Wesley Hill. Almost almost killed me, but hey, it might work out for you. So knock yourself out. I do recommend people read Washington Waiting if they want to have a good understanding of that view. Other fantastic books, uh, Changing Our Mind by David Gushy. David Gushy is one of the evangelical world's foremost ethicists. He has done tremendous work on anti-Semitism, the Holocaust. He wrote Kingdom Ethics, uh, which is one of the primary textbooks on ethics used throughout Christian colleges. However, that might be changed now since he's come out as affirming. I also highly recommend Dr. James Brownson. I think he is the bar for affirming theology. It's pretty heavy and scholarly, but but I really think it's the best. I also recommend for the non-affirming view the articles of Eve Tushnet. She was the first speaker we encountered. Um, Her work is pretty good. You know, I I respect her. And her work is is very good, and it's a good articulation of the traditional ethics. So there's a lot of reading that I can encourage you to do. Uh, definitely also read Peter Enns for a for a broader and maybe different view of scripture. And in the at the end of the third episode,
1: uh, I I read a short bit from Colby Martin's book on clobber. Yes, and and the reason that book was so powerfully therapeutic to me is. This was written by someone who was a card-carrying member of the evangelical conservative branch of the church in America and worked through a dissonance that he felt Hmm. because he was part of a denomination, which he doesn't name, so I don't know which one it was, but part of a denomination in America that welcomed gay people to worship but barred them from other activities in the church. Mm. And it created such dissonance for him that he made it a multi-year work to finally silence the dissonance. So he so the book is is fascinating because it not only tells the journey of his his metamorphosis from to to, to becoming an affirming pastor, but he also takes on each of the traditional clobber verses and really unpacks them with really current-day biblical scholarship. And this is this is relatively recent publication, so it's very timely. Awesome.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening for this four-part series on the Revoice Conference. Uh, thank you, Timothy, for letting me invade your house for an entire day to do this conversation. It has been awesome. Anytime. Um, so... That is our show for this week. As usual, I extend the invitation for more conversation around this issue. I would love to hear from people. You know, I I generally, I really liked just about all the people who spoke. Um, And I feel like, and, and I know a lot of traditional and celibate people with whom I disagree, who as who has individuals I really like and I respect them and I respect their integrity. And the fine and the note that I want to end on is: no matter how harsh I might have seemed and no matter how angry I might have seemed through this episode, I won't. No, not seemed. I I am very angry about these things. And I'm not going to pretend that that isn't the case. I I want to end on a different note by saying that I genuinely believe that people are doing the best they can with what they feel like life has given them. And I see a lot of people within the gay, celibate world doing their best with what they feel has been imposed on their life. And they're trying to do it with as much integrity as they can. And I generally believe that about people. And so even though... I disagree strongly, and even though I have very deep concerns, I want to affirm that we can disagree and still be people of integrity, and uh, even though we see the exact same things, and that is uh, the miracle of the human race, that we can all look at the exact same thing and come to completely different conclusions. That isn't a bad thing. That's the way we are as a species. So I don't want anyone to leave this conversation feeling like I have dismissed their integrity. And if I have done that, I'm sorry. That wasn't my intention. But I do want to push and I do want to challenge and I do want to concede the goodness where I see it. So on that note, I think we will wrap this episode up. Well, Timothy, thank you so much. This has been great. You're welcome. All right. Well, this is show is a production of rock candy media you can find me and respond to me at twitter at stephen b long i would love to hear from you you can also find me at sbradfordlong.com where you can read my dozens of articles on faith and doubt and sexuality and mental health and all sorts of things you can also send me an email there if you'd like to get in touch uh, You can also now support my work. Go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long and you can support my work for uh, just $5 a month or even $1 a month and you'll get a totally separate podcast every week called the house of heretics unedited conversations with my friend justin talking about faith and doubt and life and relationships and all kinds of stuff so if that interests you throw me a dollar throw me five dollars and every little bit helps the music is by the jelly rocks from the album bang and whimper you can find it on itunes and amazon i need to thank my team carson green justin caleb bryant for their help and producing this show And the show is written and edited by me, Stephen Long, and I will see you next week.